Outside Magazine recently featured a wonderful essay by the writer Rahawa Hale. This young woman from Miami, Florida, has successfully through-hiked the Appalachian Trail. Hiking solo, she made the journey of 2,179 miles from Georgia to Maine under the power of her own two feet over several months in 2016. In her fascinating story, one passage in particular stood out. Throughout my youth, my grandmother and I took walks in Miami, where I'd hear her say the words, Omnifas. It meant a delicious wind, a nourishing wind. These experiences shaped how I viewed movement throughout the natural world, how I view it still. The elements, I thought, could end my hunger. Transformational experiences in nature are perhaps the single most compelling reason that anyone would devote months of their lives and thousands of miles of walking to enjoy the great national historic trails of North America. Every year, trails like the Appalachian, the Continental Divide, or the Pacific Crest draw hikers from across the country and around the world to sample the delicious, nurturing winds of the world outside. Many spend these long hikes in quiet reflection of their lives, while others use this time to heal the emotional wounds of the past. In that regard, Rahawa Hale was no different. But during the intensely divisive and politically polarizing climate of the 2016 presidential election, she felt the added burdens of race and gender identity in a natural environment populated predominantly by white men. Disparities of participation among those who spend time in nature and those who don't still fall dramatically along the same distinctions of race, gender, and class that divide much of our country today. But on her long journey, Hale was pleased to discover that she was welcome and encouraged to become part of the Appalachian Trail community despite hiking while bisexual, female, and black. I'm James Edward Mills, and you're listening to The Joy Trip Project. freelance writer and I hiked the Appalachian Trail in 2016. I'd been in New York City for seven years and I'd hit a point in my life where I was unhappy on several fronts. First things first, I'd been working a job that I strongly disliked that had me sitting all day long and that was the first time in my life where I was more or less in one position from sun up to sundown. But then, you know, I was in a relationship that wasn't really working out and I felt stagnant and I knew some kind of change was coming. My lease was coming up, and I, I thought to myself, listen, I could, I could do anything I want right now. I'd, I knew that if I, if I wanted to you know, travel the world, do whatever, it would be now or never. And while I didn't know what was happening, what would happen next, the next phase of my life contained, I did know I'd probably not have this much free time. You know? And I, I also 
reflected on how unencumbered I was. I didn't have a mortgage, I didn't have kids, I didn't have a car payments, I didn't have anything other than myself. Um, and I'd taken to hiking after moving to New York from, from Florida, and I kept running across older people who said, oh, I wish you still had your knees, I wish I still had your back. Um, and so, you know, right shortly before this transition, I thought to myself, hey, I still have my knees and I still have my back. And so I decided to, to go on this adventure. But honestly, my good friend John Coyne took me to Bear Mountain, which is on the Appalachian Trail, one day with his family. And it was my first time legit climbing a mountain, you know, going up, it was, I think, only 1,200 feet. But still, you know, for, for a flatlander like me from Miami, it was significant. And that's what, like, seven lighthouses? <laughs> which is the only metric that really works down there. And by the time we got to the top, and I, and I saw that view, it, this was spring, and so the leaves hadn't come in yet, but it was absolutely breathtaking. And we were talking about the Appalachian Trail, and I said, you know, these blazes that we followed go all the way to Maine and all the way down to Georgia. And I, I had a hard time wrapping my mind around that kind of continuity, um, that kind of uh, effort that had been put into the creation of such a trail. And so I told myself, someday I'm going to do this, I'm going to hike the trail. I don't, know if, I don't care if it's a section hike, I don't, I don't care, but it's going to happen. And then two years later, I, I did, almost to the day. Um, but I have to say, in between that first ascent and my leaving for the trail, I read as many trail blogs as I could. I discovered what was formerly AppalachianTrials.com and is now The Trek, and I read as many books as possible. And I never saw a person of color. And then at some point, this was honestly a month before I left from my hike, I found Chardonnay's blog, who is the black woman who hiked the PCT in 2015, I think did a section hike of the AT last year, and is currently on the CDT, which is just absolutely impressive. And it was the first time I'd, I found a black through hiker who documented their journey. And it was the most inspiring and affirming thing. And when I when I look back and think about when, when I just truly started to feel confident about my ability to, to do this, it's finding Chardonnay's blog. I'm deeply indebted to her. So that was the moment that you decided that it was something that you wanted to do? Well, I mean, I mean I'd already prepared, obviously, if I was a month out from my hike. I'd, I'd, I decided it was something I wanted to do. I started to tell my friends in earnest, October of 2014. Uh, so I had about a year and a half to prepare and do research and buy gear and go on practice hikes and shakedown hikes, but it was finding Chardonnay's blog about a month before I left for the hike that made me feel less alone. I imagine that from the very beginning you knew that as a woman of color it would have some bearing on your experience on the AT as a thru-hiker. Was there a moment when it became most profound for you, when it really struck home and was a reality? Well, so one of the things I did on my thru-hike was carry books by, by black authors, and that was very important to me, and um, I've written elsewhere that they were often the only black people I talked to on my day to day. And again, this was 2016, you know, where it was full-on election season. And my goodness, if you want, if you want to know loneliness, try being a black woman through hiking the Appalachian Trail in Tennessee in 2016. It is. It's. It's. I, I don't recommend it. <laughs> I mean, yes, hike in Tennessee. But well, the point is it, it was very isolating at that point. But I remember standing on Blood Mountain right before going to Mill Gap. It's where about a quarter of all Appalachian Trail thru-hikers decide to call it quits. It's about 31 miles in. And I'm standing on Blood Mountain, and the view is absolutely spectacular. And I have my first book, 
and it's Zora Neale Hurston's collection, I Love Myself When I Am Laughing, and then again when I'm looking mean and impressive, which is just the best title. And it felt like having a friend on top of, on top of Blood Mountain. I'd have to say that's when I could really process it for what it was, you know, this monumental undertaking that I'd committed to. Can you tell me about a particular experience where you felt particularly vulnerable, either physically or emotionally? There was a time, yes, and this is something that I also wrote about, but I was climbing a mountain to get to the top of something called Snowbird Peak, and there it was a bad rainstorm. There had been a, a, the rain, it was raining off and on, and I had this significant ascent. I want to say it was like 2,500 feet or 3,000 feet for, you know, it was pretty steep though. And there was a hostel where I picked up some supplies. And I thought, should I stay at this hostel? But it wasn't really that great of a hostel. It was one of the uh, just kind of more run-down ones. The privies were overflowing, and it was raining, and everybody was drunk. And I thought, yeah, maybe not. <laughs> I think I can make it up and over this mountain. And I'm climbing, and I'm climbing, and these clouds are coming in. And then maybe 600 feet from the peak, the clouds are really coming in, and I'm thinking, oh, this is, this is bad, because by the time I reach the summit, things are, are not going to be safe. And sure enough, by the time I reached the summit, there was lightning everywhere, and I had to then run down another, I think, 1,500 feet to the shelter, to the campsite that was on the other side of the mountain. And I've never, I, I don't think I cried so much on the trail as I did that afternoon. I was completely alone, there was no one around. The trail was just one endless mudslide. I was terrified of spraining my ankle. I mean, at a certain point, it, you know, I'd take a step with the understanding that I would slide significantly and adjust. But yeah, I was like, I hope my mother knows I love her. <laughs> and, and there was serious fear. I, I don't think I've ever been that frightened in my life. Because, you know, I don't, I don't mess with lightning. I don't, I don't think anyone should. And I was kicking myself for making such a, such a, such, such a terrible error. You know, when it, was, when it would have been so easy to avoid. By the time I got to camp, of course, this tiny shelter, maybe slept five, was completely full, and it was leaking. So, you know, it's not like it would have been much better. And I found myself setting up my tent in the rain. I didn't even eat dinner. I just inhaled some, you know, cliff bar or something like that and crawled in. And it was so cold. And the next morning, I woke up. All of my clothes were still soaked and freezing. And I... I was just having a bad day on the trail. You know, they tell you never quit on a bad day, never quit on a rainy day. I mean, I had to tell myself that about a million times that morning because it was miserable, you know? And it had been raining for the most part since I started the trail in March. This year, it's a dry year. People aren't getting as much rain, but last year, there was quite a bit. And I'm like, what am I doing? I'm just walking through rain every day. I'm freezing. This, I almost got struck by lightning. And it was still cloudy, it was still raining, finally the rain stopped, and I came upon one of the most beautiful sections of the trail, this Max Patch. It was still cloudy, but by the time I got to the top of Max Patch, the clouds had parted, and there was sun everywhere, and it was one of the most spectacular views. And I just spent maybe an hour up there. I met a black woman who looked like she was 30, but of course she was like 7,000, because that's what we do. And <laughs> her name was Hazelnut, she's, she's 56, I wanna say? And she lives in New York, and she's hiking with, I think, her husband or partner. And it felt so good to see another black person on the trail and have this wonderful view and to finally feel the sun on my shoulders and on my arms. And then after we parted ways, I, I kept going. 
and stumbled upon the most memorable trail magic I would encounter for the rest of the trail. It was a former through hiking class, 2014, who set up several tents filled with fruit and burgers and beer and juice and soda and everything you'd ever need. And there was an area to camp. And so I just threw down my tent and had the most magical half day drinking and talking with these people and getting encouragement and recovering from the low of the previous day. And I felt so vulnerable. There was a certain point where people were confessing what brought them to the trail around the fire. People had been drinking for a few hours, they're they very open. And you know, you'd hear all sorts of stories. Of course, there were many veterans who were you know, dealing with mental health, people who were walking off what they'd seen, right? I mean, that's, that's Earl Schaefer, right? That's why he hiked the Appalachian Trail to begin with, to walk off the war. And there, there are many people there. There are people who are dealing with parents who died, siblings who died, people whose who marriages had ended. And you know, the most common answer I heard that night was, was to heal. That's what people were doing out there. And I, I think that was when I really felt like I belonged to a community. And it, it never stopped for the rest of the way. Now, you also identify as queer. Mm, I do. And, and I'm, I'm actually very curious if there's anything about your uh, gender identity that was particularly challenging on the AT. Well, I mean, I, I identify as, as a woman, but I, I also identify as bisexual. And I encountered nothing but tolerance. I mean, you know, sometimes some men will, will say faggot or something like that, but I, I, was, I never felt targeted. I, I don't think that 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 stopped me, but there have been many queer women who have been attacked, you know, on the trail, who who have definitely encountered uh, difficult situations. Um, I'm very happy to say that that was never an issue. But it also wasn't something that I wore on my on my chest, you know. It wasn't like, it wasn't like by the way. So yeah, no, I, I I feel very fortunate in that regard. And with regard to other situations, do you feel that your racial identity was more obviously more relevant, I mean more, oh, yeah. more apparent, I, 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 yeah. but was one more of an issue than the other? What? I don't know that I, I, I feel okay prioritizing because you never know what the, what the danger might be, right? But I know that my blackness was the most obvious vulnerability, mm -hmm. followed by the fact that I'm a woman. So, you know, I took, I took all the precautions the, that one might um, just a lot more, <laughs> you know? So I, one, one thing I've often said is I, I never hitchhiked alone. And, you know, not just, I and mean, there were many women who were also like, yes, I also would not like to hitchhike alone, but there were many, many women who were like, I don't see a problem with hitchhiking alone. And I'm like, I'm not getting into a random person's car, you know, in like rural Virginia as a black, I'm just not, I'm just I'm by myself, it's not happening. And I want to say the people on the trail are, are just, they were so welcoming. The through hiking community is, is seriously the nicest community I've ever belonged to. And the trail angels that I encountered, there would be, there were, first of all, in the South, many of them belonged to church groups, right? And I mean, they were super tolerant. They didn't matter. I'm sure I could have told them, yes, I'm, I'm, I'm queer, and they'd be like, okay, well, enjoy this burger, you know? They were, they were welcoming. They were, they weren't a threat. I never, I never felt, felt threatened. So you, you had mentioned in the outside article uh, several times, in fact, mm. that you would go to hostels that actually have. Confederate flags. Oh yeah, no. Well, so there was there was one yeah. with a Confederate flag that was flying right next to an American flag on a chicken coop, and it was I, I was like maybe there's a civil war between the chickens. Who knows? I, I don't know. I don't want to I don't want to be presumptuous, but 
there were Confederate flags everywhere, and, and what I was getting to is, I, I don't want to make it seem like, you know, everyone in every rural town is racist, that's, that's not the case, you know, but, but the only issue, the biggest issue that I did have was in trail towns, when people had no idea what to do with me. They were just like, I, you seem to be the hikers, but, we, but you might be homeless, because clearly you can't be a hiker, because it doesn't add up in their minds, and that was, that was an issue. But the Confederate flags were just so depressing, you know, I mean, especially last year, because, you know, you just saw, you know, you, I could see which way the country was going. I could see which way the election would go. And I, I, I knew it came from a place of such frustration and, and, and resentment. And there's nothing I could do about it. And that was hard to carry, you know, on top of the, the rest of my pack. So now you're Eritrean, mm -hmm. that's your ethnic heritage, and you describe situations where people would suggest that black people don't hike, yes. but you're African, so you're not black. Exactly. It's, it's really funny. It, there are many places in Africa where hiking is seen as a white thing, <laughs> so, but I, I didn't get into it with that person. What I can tell you is my dad, who was born there, loves nature to death. I mean, there are a few things he loves more than nature and driving. You know, he's, he instilled that love in me from a very young age, and I am very grateful to him. Is that perhaps where that appreciation for nature comes from, especially as someone who you grew up in Florida, where there's not a whole lot of mountains? Now, there is definitely the Everglades and right, places right. where there is, is where nature abounds, but is that, do you suppose, where your particular love of nature came from? Yeah, absolutely. Back when I was more obnoxious, I'd say things along the lines of my dislike of Miami stems from my love of Florida. Because Florida, you know, it doesn't have mountains, but it, it has springs, it has the keys, it has so many ways to, to be outside. Tons of fishing, obviously, scuba diving, snorkeling. Yeah, so it has so many ways to be outside without necessarily being attacked by mosquitoes. But the, the one thing that people know is, is the Everglades. But the beaches are, are just as important. And what Florida taught me is how to appreciate small beauty, you know, in the outdoors. Because I would never have the kind of views that, that are afforded to people who live in the Bay Area or near Mount Hood or wherever. I would never be able to just kind of like drive over and walk around Rainier, you know? But what I, I could do is learn about fish, learn about birds, you know, go canoeing, go kayaking, learn about plants. You know, it's so funny, we talk about being in nature in our minds, it's this, it's this active pursuit. When, at least for me growing up, it was more about being in the natural world. At least that was how I could access it. And it's really interesting because, you know, we have this culture where people say, well, Black people don't do that, oh, and right. people will quite literally tell you while you're wearing a backpack on the Appalachian Trail that black people don't hike. How do you respond to that? Do you have a pat response, or do you just ignore them politely? Well, it depends on how invested I am, you know, and it depends on how they how they bring it up. I mean, so this man that I encountered, clearly he meant no harm, you know, he wasn't dis. It, it, I couldn't even call it dismissive. You know, he's just ignorant, completely ignorant. Um, but sometimes people will say, I didn't, I didn't think that black people hike, you know? Sometimes people will say, it's good to see a, a black person hiking, and I, I could say, well, you know, actually, there, it's, it's not exactly, a, you know, uncommon, terribly uncommon. It's more common than you suspect, you know? But if somebody is kind of a jerk about it, then it's not my job to educate them. 
unless they're being cool to me or to someone else, in which case I will clap back. So, but you know, you do mention in your article several uh, racially motivated incidents of violence that, that you didn't experience but had been perpetrated on the trail itself. Uh, did these events ever discourage you? Did they make you feel uncomfortable or unsafe or I mean, question your... Well, yeah, so um, that's a good question. Me? You know, I don't think anything could have made me feel more unsafe. Uh, period. I mean, I, I don't think any one act would have made me think perhaps I should carry base or a gun. The fear is always there. The significant fear is always there. And that's, on a certain level, a blessing because you, you're not so easily deterred. On the other hand, that's, what a depressing sentence, right? Like, that's, that shouldn't be. But that's just how it is, at least for me and at least right now. And I really hope that at some point in the future, people of color won't have to think like that or, 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 or um, have to be quite so vigilant. But no, I, it's, I, don't, I don't think any one thing would have deterred me outside of direct violence. So in the meantime, what do we do? I mean, is, I mean, in the meantime, until that day comes when we don't have to, to think that way, how do you cope? How do you make it so that you're safe and comfortable in your, in your, in your skin, in your mind, in your heart? I think we have to come to terms with the fact that anytime we're going outside, we're taking a risk, and to try not to live in fear of that risk, but within it. And to not allow that to hinder our mobility and our desires to move forward through the world. I think, for me, there are, there are obviously ways of, of offsetting that, right? So you, that's why you have groups like Outdoor Afro, right? Because there are safety in numbers. And, you know, I'd probably think twice before, like, hiking by myself in, you know, rural Idaho. There are ways to, to hike smartly, <laughs> of course. But I would... I would suggest embracing, embracing the fear and not letting it stop you. So there's a, a line in your article that I'm going to read, and I'm actually, when we're done, I'm going to ask you to read it for me as well. But throughout my youth, my grandmother and I took walks in Miami, where I hear her say the words, Tum Nifa. It meant a delicious wind, a nourishing wind. These experiences shape how I view movement through the natural world how I view it still, the elements I thought could end my hunger. First of all, that's incredibly beautiful. <laughs> what, well, first of all, can you elaborate on what does, and am, am I pronouncing it right? It's a tum nifa? It's tu omnifas. Tu, tu omnifas. Perfect. Okay, so what is, elaborate on, on what exactly does that mean? Tu omnifas, um, tu om means delicious, tasty, and nifas is wind. The way that my grandmother meant it was more of, of a nourishing, more of this is this is the world feeding you, and that you can be fed by the world, you can you can be fed by the elements, and that you know that always stuck with me. And this is this is also an extension of trying to find beauty and comfort in in existence and just the small things. I mean, and to this day, I, I think I love the wind more than anything else. <laughs> But, you know, when I, when I say something like, you know, the elements could end my hunger, I just mean it could be my companion, you know, it could keep me company, it could, could help me feel less alone no matter what I'm doing. And this, this goes back to, you know, how do you live with that fear? How do you, how do you, how do you not let fear stop you? It's, it's pretty much to know that nature's got your back. 
so what are you hungry for? Well, when I was younger, I was I was just lonely, you know, and and I, well, I mean, I, I felt, I felt like I had a friend in nature. What am, what am I hungry for now? I mean, goodness, what? I don't know, a better government, <laughs> like, like an actual democracy. I'm I'm hungry for a lot of things right now, but I think I would love to see more. More awareness from either. Let me let me think about how to phrase this. I think the national parks is, as a whole, the national park system is un unfortunately in a way ahead of its constituents. You know where they? I think the national parks and many outdoor agencies want diversity. Are 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 are, are really pushing to get more people of color, and especially black people, of course, outdoors, right? There isn't as much attention being paid to how do you explain to, to these white park goers why this is important? Because one of the big things I'm seeing is white people saying, there's no sign that says people can't enter. Why do you have always have to make this about race? Why are you making me feel bad? This is the thing that I do to feel good and get away from it all. And now you're shoving this down my throat and I'm resentful. You know, so I would, I would like, I would like more of a holistic approach. You know, it isn't just bringing people of color outdoors and making them feel safe. If I, I think the only way forward that I see is by, uh, by creating a real community, and that involves everyone. Wow, I mean, just as a minor aside, I mean, just the 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 notion that it's not just about boosting numbers; it's about creating awareness. Yeah. You know, it's about making sure that people understand that when anybody doesn't feel welcome in our national parks, in our public lands, that that is indeed a problem. Yes. And I'm curious, from your standpoint, what does that look like? I mean, what is what does that more inclusive environment where everyone is welcome look like? I mean, how is it? How would that be different than this today? Well, it's hard to say. There is. A woman who wrote a piece for the long form recently, a black woman, who wanted to, I think, go away and go camping for a few days and drove around the national parks out west. And she wrote about, I think her name is Minda, Minda Honey. She talked about not what it felt like to be in nature, but what it felt to be at a diner on your way to get somewhere, what it felt like for people to say, to constantly ask you, why don't more black people hike, to, to constantly say, oh, you're not like the others. Like, what the hell is that? I don't know. Like, maybe, maybe don't do that. <laughs> so I think that's, that's step one, because by, by treating someone like they're an exception, you know, I mean, you other them, right? You, and you make them feel othered, and nobody wants to feel othered. So I'd, I'd say start by treating hikers of color the way you would any other hiker. This interview with writer and Appalachian Trail thru-hiker Rahawa Hale was recorded in a coffee shop in Oakland, California. Sorry for all the ambient noise, but this conversation was definitely worth sharing. Look forward to a feature story on Hale and the delicious winds of the outdoors in the next issue of the journal Appalachia. 
for the Joy Chip Project. This is James Edward Mills. Music this week by Jake Shimobakura. Check out his latest album, Travels, now available on iTunes or at jakeshimobakuro.com. Thanks for listening, but as always, I want to hear from you, so please drop me a note with your questions, comments, and criticisms to info at joytripproject.com. Go be joyful, and until next time, take care.